0: Well, do take your Bibles together with me, please, and open in them back to John 17 as we pick up our series where we left it off last week. Some very powerful, profound truth is in front of us here today. But before we get into that, I do just want to make mention of the fact that, according to the reports that I've heard, uh, Bogdan and Rosie Balaban had their baby boy here this morning. Now, I hope that's not fake news. I did not hear it directly from them. But that is the report that I've heard, so we're going to go with it. And if you know Rosie and Bogdan, I would encourage you to reach out and seek to be an encouragement to them. What a great, marvelous thing it is. Uh, Speaking of things for which to praise the Lord and for which to praise His name uh, is the addition of that new little life here into our church family. You know, that's uh, that's two out of two weeks here that we've had to make that announcement of a new life coming into our church family. I can't wait to see what next week brings. Uh, See if we can go three for three. Um, But this is wonderful, and we are so very grateful for God's kindness to that family and to our church with the addition of that life. You know, sometimes we come to a text that is just so clear that it really needs no introduction. Because on its own, without any kind of explanation, it's just utterly gripping. And this, the text that we're in today is one of those kinds of passages. And so we're just going to go ahead and jump right on in. I'd encourage you to go ahead and hold your breath. Consider yourself warned. No, don't really do that. Uh, But we are just going to dive off here into the text. You know, as we've gone through John chapter 17, we've been just repeatedly confronted, have we not, with our own human weakness and total inability to fulfill the standard and the expectation that God has put before us that we would live under the glory of his name. I mean, honestly, how am I, a sinful human being, able to live up to and in light of that kind of a standard? It's only as God does his work, as we've discovered here in this chapter, that such a thing can be possible. It's only as the Father secures us and sanctifies us, it's only as He protects us and perfects us that this can happen in our lives. But that doesn't mean that things are going to be easy for us. It doesn't mean that now we're just on easy street and everything is going to happen just the way it should because God is the one who does these works in our lives. No, He is the one who is responsible for them, but that is still going to require effort and spiritual sweat, if you will, from you in order to be faithful to His expectations in your life. And so, because it's going to require us to buckle down and apply ourselves, we need some encouragement along the way as we go through this great chapter here. Yes. God is going to do a great work in you that is going to make it possible for us to fulfill his expectations now, but we are still going to need to be encouraged even as we apply ourselves to the the Christian walk and the work of sanctification. And that's really the best way I know to condense and combine everything we've studied in this chapter so far over the past month. And so this morning, as we come down to verse 20, it's with great joy that we find exactly the kind of encouragement that we need here in this verse. Because see, in verse 20, Jesus is going to turn a corner here in the text, because up until this point, the primary audience in this prayer has been the 11 faithful disciples who are still walking with Jesus. And just as we've been doing, the principles in those first 19 verses can and rightly should be extrapolated and applied to our own lives. But that doesn't change the fact that the, that the primary direct application was first to these men. Jesus is praying for them specifically. But here in verse 20, this is where the encouragement comes in. Because now here in this verse, Jesus is going to turn his attention away from men like Peter, James, and John, and he is going to train his most holy eye directly onto you and me. See, it's for that reason that in my estimation, John seventeen twenty is one of the most devotionally powerful verses in the Gospel of John. Let me read it for us and then I'll explain why I say that. Verse 20 tells us, I do not ask, Jesus says, for these only, these 11 disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Here's why that's so encouraging, so very powerful. Because in the omniscience of Jesus, he looks down through the corridors of time and sees the channels that will be cut across The surface of human history channels through which will flow the power of his gospel until it reaches you, changes you, and runs through you to still yet others beyond you. See, all of us who are here today in Christ, we are in the eye of his mind in this verse. And here in these coming verses, Jesus is going to, to train the, the powerful canon of his intercessory work on your life from a point in time that, that is 2,000 years before you were ever even born. See, the intercession of Christ for you, it, it didn't start at whatever age you were saved. Now it runs back thousands of years your relationship to Jesus Christ extending all the way back into eternity past to the point at which God chose you before the foundations of time. See, as as Jesus sees us here in this text, prior to our birth, he speaks now of our redemption in and through him in the present tense, as though it's already an accomplished reality, as though you've already been made spiritually alive. That's How powerful his redemptive work was and how efficient his salvation is. It can be spoken of as an accomplished reality before you were ever even born. And so, in light of that, here in this text, Jesus now prays not just for those 11 men. Now he prays for you and me specifically. We are the ones who are in view here in verse 20 as we round the corner. And I don't know about you, but that's incredibly meaningful and personal to me. So, considering the intensely personal relationship that is going to be what empowers everything that we've learned already here in John chapter 17, what is Jesus' request for me? See, when he thought of me, What was his number one desire for me? Well, here is his request. See, he prays that his oneness with you would reflect his oneness with the Father. That because now I am one with Christ, I would also be one with all of you as well. That's what we find Jesus saying and praying for in verse 21 when he thinks of us. Here's his new distinct priority. Verse 21 that they may all be one, you and me together, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Here in verse 21, we come across a very distinct priority that Jesus has now for his church for those who follow him in faith and have been saved by him. And that priority can simply be boiled down into one word, and that word is unity. See, John chapter 17, let's dig into this now. John chapter 17, as we've been studying it together over the past number of weeks, there's, there's been two primary requests in this chapter already. Two things that Jesus states with the force of an imperative or a command where he says, if this work is going to happen, Father, you're going to have to do it. So, Holy Father, protect them, that's request number one, and perfect them, that's request number two. But now we come here in this verse, verse 21, to a third request. But this request now is going to be framed up just a little bit differently. It's no longer an imperative from the Son to the Father for the Father to do his work. No, now this request is stated more like just a simple statement of fact. And the reason for that is because this unity that he is seeking is the direct fruit of God doing the first and second work. See, it's because of our salvation and our sanctification that unity now becomes possible for us. Unity is the fruit of us having been sanctified and us having been saved. It's really stated here in this text with the logical force of a mathematical kind of an equation. If A plus B, if you have been saved by the Father and are being sanctified by the Father, then C... You will be unified with not only me, but also one another. There's a pretty powerful ramification there. The implication of that formula that he gives to us here is that if you look around at the church in which you are and you don't see the unity of the Spirit there, if you see division and dissension and chaos and strife, if you don't see the unity that is supposed to be the result of salvation and sanctification, then the logical conclusion that you must draw is that there is a problem somewhere along the way with point A and B. You need to go back and examine, is there really salvation here in the lives of these who are going like this? And if there is salvation, then there's definitely a problem with sanctification. Because if salvation has occurred and sanctification is occurring, then unification will take place. That's the logical flow here of what's being communicated to us in chapter 17. Clearly, this is very important for us as a church to not only understand now, but to apply. And that's the task that's before us here this morning. It's important that we consider this priority that Jesus gives to us here, this thing he prays for, with some pretty sober minds. Now, there's going to be two parts to what Jesus says here as it relates to this new priority first he's going to train our attention on the oneness that he experiences with his father and that oneness between the father and the son is then going to become the model on which my oneness to you and your oneness with each other is supposed to be framed that's what Jesus says here is it not that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. It is the unity between the Father and the Son that is meant to be the comparative model between my unity with each and every one of you. So let's consider each half of that equation in its due course. Let's start by looking at the oneness of the Father and the Son. How Were they one? When Jesus says you're in me and I'm in you and that's the level of unity that we share with each other, that's the model for now my people, what does that actually look like? What does that actually mean? Well, for us to understand that, we've got to kind of broaden out the scope and throttle the choke here just a little bit to survey John's entire gospel, and we'll do that very quickly, very simply here. What have we learned in the presentation of Jesus from the Apostle John so far in this book? We've learned that Jesus and the Father are one. They exist in each other. They are inseparable from one another, fully equal in power and glory and authority and will and word. Jesus is not a lesser manifestation of God. No, John chapter 1 taught us right from the very beginning that Jesus is the exact representation, the exact image of God who came to make known to us now the very face of God. He and the Father are truly one, completely one, in, inseparably one, you might say. That's the quality of oneness that is set up in front of us as being the model for our oneness now with each other. But we can actually dig now just a little bit deeper into what Jesus means when he says that he and the Father are one, as we use just this chapter, just John chapter 17, as the interpretive lens to understand what he means when when he says, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me and and we are one. Now at this point, my my friend John MacArthur has done some really good work and I can't really improve upon what he has brought out here, so I'm just going to quote him now at this point. Specifically, the oneness of the Father and the Son, to which Jesus is pointing our attention to here in John 17, 1, includes five different features as defined by chapter 15. You ready? There's a oneness in motive that exists between them. In verse 1, we're told that they share a motivation that the glory of the fullness of God would be manifested and made known to humanity. There is a oneness beyond their motivation for the glory of God to be made known. There's also a oneness in their mission as well. John 17:2 teaches us that their mission is to bring their shared eternal life that they have with one another and deliver it to sinners. That is their mission so that the glory of God might be put on display, which then results now in verse 8 with a oneness in the truth. Their, their words are, are clear Fully sharing all authority. There's a oneness there in the truth of their word. There's a oneness forth in their holiness. Where Jesus looks at the Father and claims him to be the holy, the holy Father. And then he asks that the Father would apply that same holiness to us as he sanctifies us. See the Father and the Son share a oneness, a unity in their holiness. They are committed to purity not only between themselves but also in the ones whom they save. And then finally, there is a oneness in love that they share with each other. There's a love that they have for each other. And there is a love that they have for those of us whom they have chosen to save, as we will learn in a few minutes in verse 23. See, in these five ways here in John chapter 17, the union of the Father and the Son extends not only to their shared identity, but also to their shared activity. See, they, if they are to be the model for us, then the unity of the church must follow suit in the very same five ways. See, like them, Jesus says here, we now must be one in our motive. Our goal is to bring glory to God. That's literally the first line of our mission statement printed on the back wall in the lobby. If that's the goal, the grand goal of the Father and the Son that they share together then that must now be the grand goal that we all share together with one another, that we would seek to live our lives fully and completely unto the glory of the Lord. If that's His motivation, then that must be our unified motivation. Let's keep going. See, if His mission is to bring eternal life to sinners, then now our shared mission, our common mission, is to bear witness of that eternal life as well. We, We are unified in having that mission to deliver the truth of God and His life To our world, which means that just as He is unified in the truth, so too now must we be unified around the truth, where our shared standard now is to hold fast to the very words of life that are our guide and guardian as we go through this world. If He, Father and Son, are unified together in their holiness, well, guess what? If He is the model, then you and I must be unified together in our pursuit of their very same holiness. You and I, we now, must share in a mutual pursuit towards sanctification, so that we might be made holy just as they are holy. And if they're unified in their love for one another and for us, well then, guess what? Our collective desire must also be to love and care for one another, and thereby reflect the nature and glory of Jesus Christ. That is what it looks like in practice for us to be one in the same way that he is one. Now we understand a little bit more clearly Jesus' prayer request that we would all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they may be in us also so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, The goal, the mission that you would put on display the glory of God and bear witness of who he is to the world depends upon you and me sharing together a unified motive and mission and truth and holiness and love with one another. And if we do not do that, then those things, the glory of God, cannot be put on display through us, and we have fundamentally failed in the mission that has been entrusted to us. This is really important stuff now for the church. See, having been caught up into their oneness, as Jesus says, our reflection of their nature, it, it's supposed to become the vehicle by which the glory of God is known. And so this new distinctive, that we would be one as we interact with one another, it's at the very beating heart, the core of what true Christianity is supposed to look like in the church. Now let me just drive home here how important this is and was in the mind of Christ, before we turn our attention to the how and the what of it. Remember now, as we come down here into verse 20 and 21, we're, we're in the final paragraph of material that comes from Jesus prior to the cross. This is one of his final statements of emphasis for his followers. Clearly, it matters a lot to him. There's a lot of last words that he could give to his followers But these are the words that he wants their attention and ours to be focused on. Not only, though, are these his last words, but if you fast forward the tape to the book of Revelation, as we did over this past summer, you'll get to Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus comes to his churches and seeks to give them instructions on how they are to interact with him and each other. And in that text of instruction from Jesus, what's the very first thing out of Jesus' mouth? At the head of the list of instructions, there in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, he's speaking to the very first church, the church at Ephesus. And he says to them, you have lost your love. And what he means by that is, not only your love for me, but also your love for each other. That's how I know you've lost your love for me, because you're not loving each other. And, and if you don't come back together again, then I am going to snuff your church right out. See, these aren't just Jesus' last words. If Jesus were to speak to us in person today, which he is through his word, this priority right here would also be his first words to us. See, friends, this, this has got to be a priority for us because it matters a great deal to him. If you claim to be one with Christ and found in Christ... Then you must also now be one with those in whom Christ dwells. So, considering the importance of this new priority, that now leads me at least to another very important question How am I supposed to do it? Right? How do I do it? Well, that gets us into what we'll call an empowering reality. Jesus doesn't leave us wondering. No, here in verse 22, he answers the question about how we are to do this. And my friends, this is really important now. Because if we're really honest with each other, in the fallenness of our human flesh, sometimes other people, especially Christians who are supposed to know better, they bug me. Can we just be honest about that together here for a minute? that's something of which we need to repent but it is the reality of our shared human experience in our flesh what jesus is calling us to here in this text is not a natural condition of being for human beings because human beings are naturally bent and given over to their sinfulness and ever since the dispersion of mankind at the tower of babel there have just been unbridgeable divides and chasms that have been created amongst humanity Distinctions in culture, in language, in race, in ethnicity, in technology, wealth gaps, educational gaps, ideological divides, and, and all of those things out there in the world serve as forces that split and divide and shatter people apart. And that's before we ever even start talking about issues of personality or circumstances that might rub up against the grain of, of who I am. See, that's the natural world in which we live. But what Jesus is calling us to here in this text is a very different kind of being. He's calling us to exist in relationship with one another in in a way that avoids backwashing all of those secular divisions right back into the church because, newsflash, the church isn't supposed to look like the world. It's supposed to be different, as Jesus says in verse 21 here. He's already told us the way by which the world will know that you, Father, have sent me is as they see my followers acting in a way that is differently from them. And and here's the truth that verse 22 is going to teach us. You cannot solve a theological problem with a secular kind of a solution There is only one way by which this problem of disunity is able to be solved. And it's going to be through the means by which Jesus Christ gives to us here. So how how is the church to be different in practice from the world in which we live? This is obvious in our world. We don't have to spend time belaboring that point. Well, the means by which the church is able to be different Is not going to be through artificial think tanks or through the application of newfangled woke theology. No, here's exactly how this is made possible for you and for me in the context of our church. And this, by the way, is the only way. In verse 22, Jesus says, The glory that you have given me, I have now given to them so that, it's a purpose statement, they may be one even as we are one the key to us being one as he and the Father are one is found wrapped up in that statement of his glory entrusted to him that he has now turned and entrusted to us. So we've got to understand that because that statement is the key for how this actually happens here in our midst. See, the only way to attain true unity is as Christ is legitimately, actually, formed with inside each and every one of us who claim to be those who are his followers. Sanctification, the formation of Christ-likeness, the glory of God being transferred onto your life, that, that is how this happens. Let's just dig a little deeper here into this text. You can look there at verse 22. What does it mean when he says, the glory that you have given me, I have now given to them. Well, based upon the earlier lessons that that we have studied here in this chapter, we know, don't we, that the glory he's referring to is the manifestation of God's character, the imaging of his nature. So when he says, you have given glory to me, what's he saying? You have entrusted your nature, the nature of your name, to me so that I might reveal it to them. And now having revealed to them the nature of their God, through my work, I am going to see fit that that nature now be formed in them, that that Christ now takes up residency within us and that we begin to look like him. See, that glory is not only revealed in Christ, but the glory that he's referring to here has now been installed within us through the indwelling of his spirit. And here now he tells us that the direct results of your sanctification, the process, if you will, by which his nature is formed in us, is that we now, looking like Christ, may be one with each other, even as he is one with his Father. Here's how that translates into practice. Look, when you are just enthralled with the person of Jesus Christ, amazed at the reality of who he is, And your life begins to look like his life. When you're pursuing his life being formed inside of you, that's sanctification. You cannot hate your brother. It's impossible. So you can't bicker amongst yourselves when both people that are bickering are simultaneously striving after the glory of God as being their ultimate aim in life. That's true in a church. It's also true in a marriage. You can't fight with each other and be hostile with each other if you're both seeking after the glory of God rather than your own desires. Here's how this works. You can't be embittered against a brother or a sister when you look at them, but you see in them the face of your Savior. When you look at a life that has been transformed by Christ and you see the power and the impact of his work, well, how are you supposed to hold your puny little grievance against them? See, you you can't be hostile towards the bride of Christ and the family of God that he has formed, when you also perceive the presence of God's Holy Spirit moving in her midst and and working to change individuals to look more like Jesus Christ. See, the character of Christ, the glory, the very nature of God being formed in you, that, my friend, is the key to finding true unity with one another which then begs the question, it's an important question, all right, if the character of Christ being formed in me is the foundation, the basis for my unity with you, then how do I make sure that the character of Christ is being formed in me? And to answer that question, I would point your attention back to what we talked about last week, because Jesus has already covered this ground. Remember John chapter 17, verse 17? Christ's likeness only comes through the application of God's Word. That's the secret weapon. The Word of God being applied to life, that's the foundation, therefore, of Christian unity, which leads us now to a a very crucial point of clarification here, and it's one that Pastor Jerry and I have talked about at length, and we both agree with it. This peace that needs to exist amongst us, it can only be had as the truth is understood and applied Because until you apply the truth of God's word to your life, you will not look like Christ. And if you do not look like Christ, you cannot be one with each other. The key to oneness in the body of Christ, the key to oneness with each other, is that you be looking like Christ, and to look like Christ, you must be applying the word of Christ. That's what we've been taught here already in John chapter 17. Which means that you cannot have unity apart from the truth. You know, I can't tell you how many pastors I've talked to or know whose doctrinal statement doesn't go beyond this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. Now, there's nothing wrong fundamentally with that statement. But if you're using that statement to avoid having to draw any doctrinal distinctives or lines or land on a page and say, this is what I believe the scriptures teach, That is wrong because, see, you can't have unity if you don't first have the truth. Jesus doesn't say in verse 17, Father, sanctify them in the truth, only to toss that truth out the window when we get to verse 21 for the sake of a shallow, truthless sense of camaraderie. No, unity that is devoid of theology is, is shallow and it cannot hope to weather the storms of life. The only way that true unity can be had within the context of the church is as we are made to look like Christ. And that requires the application of truth and doctrine. True unity demands deeply held commitments that are now going to be applied in a, in a spirit of love and grace. Who's the model of this? person of Jesus he knew exactly what he believed he wasn't confused he had his convictions about that which was true and that which was not and he held to those convictions firmly making no apology for them but when he came to interact with the man on the street about that truth he did so with a spirit of love he did so with a spirit of grace and that's what we're called to here as well To be unshakable and clear in our convictions, firm in them, even as we seek to apply them with care and concern. See, there there can be no unity without sanctification, and there is no sanctification without the knowledge of the truth. If it's the truth that makes us look like Christ, and Christ being manifested in us is the foundation for how unity is developed, then there can be no shortcuts, there are no alternative routes to seeing the unity of the spirit developed in the body of Christ. It means that all of us together must be pursuing likeness to Christ as we seek to apply the word of Christ to our lives. There is no unity without first there being orthodoxy. That's how this happens. So, now that we understand how unity is formed between us, it's as Christ is made, fashioned, and formed within us, What does that translate into now in the life of the church specifically? Well, enter verse 23 now. See, it's the chain reaction of God in Christ and Christ in us that now enables us to live in harmony with one another. So when that happens, what does that look like from the street level? Well, Jesus answers that as he restates his request, but he does it with a twist here in verse 23. I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you've loved me. Can you spot the difference between the first time he made this request and now here the second time? It's the manifestation of how this unity shows itself. It's with a perfect kind of unity. Now that word there for perfect, it's the Greek word telos, which means for something to come to its conclusion or to come to the end, for a work to be finished or completed, to be what it was intended to be. It's the very same word that Jesus is going to use in John chapter 19, verse 30, when he looks at his finished work at the cross and cries to It has been finished. It is done. See, his work was finished so that our work of unity could be made possible the very same word, just as his finished work makes it possible for us to be one with him. Now, our work is to seek to be one with each other because we're one with him. And based upon his presence within us, that's not beyond our reach now. Does that mean that we're going to be perfect? (laughs) No. But it does mean that unity with one another is now possible. And that's why, friend, the rest of the New Testament gives many practical points of instruction for the new community church which Christ made. We are new community church, and that means that we must follow the new commandment of Christ that we would love one another just as he has loved us, John thirteen thirty four, for instance. So what does that look like in practice? Well, I would point your attention to texts like Philippians 2, 1 through 4, where we're told to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Or a text like Ephesians 4, 1 through 6, where Paul says there, I urge you now, all of you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. What does it look like to walk worthy? Well, it means that you evidence all humility, gentleness, with patience, bearing with each other in love. And then get this eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And there are many other New Testament texts that we could go to to illustrate how this perfect unity that Christ calls us to here gets manifested in the church. But but let's really get tactical here for just a few minutes and, and apply this truth that we've been learning about now directly to our context here at New Community. What does this kind of Christ-empowered unity look like in practice? Well, the scriptures give us many different examples and points of application. We could start by talking about issues of Christian liberty, for instance. See, in church life, there are those things that God has explicitly said, things that he has clearly revealed. And these are the things that we believe without variation or, or, or walking away from them. Some examples would be, Sexual immorality of any kind is wrong. Gossip is sin. A proud heart is an offense against God. Rejecting God's design for biological males and females is to reject God himself. These are plain, divinely revealed statements of truth that Scripture obviously makes clear for us. And so we believe them wholeheartedly. But then there are areas in the Christian life where we must interpret God's word to stake out our own positions. And these are now our convictions. Issues such as what kind of entertainment choices are we going to make? Or what kind of schools are we going to send our kids to? Issues of modesty in dress or whether or not to drink in moderation. These these are all examples of convictions that, that flow out of consciences that have been informed by scriptures. But for the, true, for the church to operate in true harmony, we've got to be careful now to distinguish between our beliefs and our convictions as we interact with each other. Because God has left many areas of the Christian life where we must individually apply wisdom and truth, knowing that ultimately we will give an account to him and him alone. Now if I, as your brother, see you walking in clear sin against the divinely revealed truth of God, I am responsible to confront that for the sin that it is. But when it comes to my own convictions and to my own preferences, it's never appropriate for me to threaten the unity of the church by forcing onto you those things that I prefer. See, we can have discussions about those issues of conscience, but we must be governed by love and grace in the midst of those discussions remembering that beliefs and convictions are not the same things. And we have to be careful to distinguish between them, as the scriptures call for us to do. Now that, right there, could be its own full-blown sermon series. Enough said. But if you want to learn more about that and read more about what that should look like in the church, I'd encourage you to go back and read Romans chapter 14. Because there, Paul gives us a crash course on what this is supposed to look like in the life of the church. Let's maybe pick a different area of application in the life of the church. Call it issues of Christian teaching. This is another application point that the scriptures make for us as it relates to our unity with one another. See, it's so easy for Christians to gravitate towards the teaching of people who think like me or who connect better with me. There are certain preachers or teachers in the church that we all like to hear and outside the church, there's Christian celebrities and podcasters that fill up our electronic devices with more hours of content than we have in the rest of our lives. And that's, that's a good thing, to hear the truth and to listen attentively. Nothing wrong with having a preference on who you listen to until you start to follow that teacher to a degree where you begin to look down on those who don't. Let me be really clear here. There is no teacher in this church who has a corner on the truth Anytime the word of God is opened by anyone, we all bury our noses in it and seek to discern, is this right? And if it is, we follow it, regardless of who is saying it. We don't look at other small groups sideways because of who leads them or who attends them and think that ours is better than theirs because of the format of the study or the the tools that they happen to use there. There is no Bible study or Bible study method in this church that does things the the right way versus those who do them the wrong way. No, in the church, there is no we versus them. There's just now us, always. The Corinthian church had a really big problem with this. In the opening introduction of his epistle to the Corinthians, Paul says, What is going on? That's my paraphrase for you. Each of you is saying to each other, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. What? Is Christ divided amongst you? No, but we are one, and that means that we encourage each other to grow regardless of the context where the truth is being found in the church, and we are to urgently and eagerly seek after that truth regardless of where it may be found, not following after specific teachers. Maybe one more point of application for us here this morning. told you we were going to get tactical. Let's call it issues of cultural identity. and, And friends, this one is particularly pressing given the state of our culture and the urgency of the election that is bearing down upon us in just a few short months. And you know, as I talk with many of you, it is apparent already that there is a spectrum of perspectives here in our midst, even within this church, on how we as individuals should be landing on issues going on out there in our world. And the natural response to a statement like that in your mind might be, yeah, that may be true, but I'm still right. (laughs) (laughs) And maybe you are right, but that doesn't actually matter. That's not what's most important. See, here's the truth we've got to remember. We were called to be Christians before we were ever making the choice to engage in politics. Now, let me be really clear now. I'm not saying that it's wrong to hold your beliefs dearly and go to work on behalf of them. That's part of being salt and light in a fallen world now, okay? But, and and that's true especially when we come to issues that, that have to do with divinely revealed truth of God's word. Issues, for instance, like issues of abortion or the sanctity of human life. Those are the kinds of moral issues with which we do have divinely revealed truth and we ought to rise up as one and speak with the authority of God's word. But what I am saying here is that we are first called to be ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors for Jesus Christ. And so what we do out there should never call into question our identity of who we are in here And when it comes to being in here together as a group, Colossians 128 governs what it is we're supposed to be about. And we are commanded to preach Christ and not the culture. See, it's the preaching of Christ and his gospel and his word where now we will find our unity. So over over these coming months, as we talk together, we may well find ourselves in different places as it relates to, to various issues that may mean a lot to us. But here's my question for you directly. Do you love Christ enough to set aside those temporal differences and passions and love each other as he has loved you? Will you manifest the glory of Christ who dwells within you now by exhibiting grace, charity, gentleness, goodness, patience, and most importantly, self-control? Look, and here's where I want to land the plane today the temptation to division is so strong and the opportunities for it are virtually endless in the world in which we live. And yet the prayer of Christ here for us is stronger and his expectation to a perfect unity is greater because as verse 23 teaches us at the end, the world's ability to see the Father's love and know that Christ came from him is inextricably linked to the way by which now we would love each other. You know, picking up his pen and writing nearly 60 years after the events of John chapter 17, the Apostle John, having had six decades to stew on and really soak in the words of Jesus, said this in the epistle of 1 John, whoever says he's in the light but hates his brother he is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light, well, in him there is no cause for stumbling because he is in the light. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Friends, may we truly be people who repent when we find our unity trending towards the darkness. May we be people who are faithful as we ought to, as Christ has, to truly love one another. And may we strive actively towards a perfect unity with one another, knowing that, that because we are now one with Christ and God is glorified as the oneness that he shares with his Son is formed in you, May that now be the pursuit of our lives as we engage with each other. Let's close there in a word of prayer this morning.